There we go. All right, so uh, let's go to uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Um, Dad got down through, um, kind of tailed off, <laughs> kind of tailed off uh, around 8, 9, 10, 11, somewhere in there. Um, the theme of the passage, as those of you that were here, was um, was basically resting, entering, entering into um, this time of rest. And, of course, the concept there, um, if you look in verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did his. So the, the concept here of, of resting is resting after you've finished your task, after you've done what God has set out for you to do. Um, and it kind of informs this next verses as you head into 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So off and on in Hebrews, we've talked about these concepts about falling away and uh, remaining faithful and that sort of thing. And we've had you know, this uh, uh, suggestion, um, depending on how carefully you read it, about uh, is this saying you're losing your salvation or something like that. And this concept of, of striving and not falling away and disobedience and everything, that's, that's not what this rest is referring to. So um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but um, maybe I'll put it in the study notes, that, that those that complete the task before you, those of us that strive to be faithful to the end, we're going to have extra work, so to speak, uh, to extra responsibility in the days to come. Uh, when we're uh, put in charge of things and ruling over things, that's, that's our reward for finishing well. There's extra work for us to do, and this is in Revelation. I'll see if I can put that reference in there. Again, the context of Hebrews is a group of people um, about to face some persecution. So th this constant reminder about not falling away has special meaning for them. Um, they didn't have uh, you know, all the people on the Weather Channel warning them about what was going to happen. Uh, they just had prophecy. They just had this prophetic word you know, that God was preparing them to get ready and so this is that word, and, and certainly far more accurate than, than, um, than even our, our best prognosticators uh, in the meteorological world. Although, you know, they're, we're grateful for them, and we all tune into them, so we, we, we like them. Um, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Verse 12, a famous verse, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So this concept that... Uh, to finish up this whole thought about being faithful to the end and 
being true and submitting yourselves to God's word, who's going to uh, help you discern what's what's there that shouldn't need to be there, what needs to come out, what is uh, possibly uh, keeping you from attaining everything that you need to attain to. Um, uh, we will give an account for that, right? So there's references here to uh, the the uh, judgment seat um, or the the bema seat, I guess, where rewards are are handed out, not the great white throne judgment, but uh, this account that all Christians will um, will uh, uh, go through. Um, so that's kind of completes this whole passage of. Um, that started in verse 1 of that chapter, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to fail to reach it. So this whole fourth chapter is about staying the course, finishing well, not falling away during times of persecution, latching on with everything you've got to this um, culmination of God's redemptive plan that started way back when. Uh, he's trying to say, hang on to this. Um, uh, this is something you can literally uh, put your uh, life on the line for because it's going to come to that. And with that concept, you can see how it flows naturally into this next section beginning in verse 14 and, and will probably, uh, hopefully at least, make it through uh, the first eight or ten verses of chapter 5 where we're back to this concept of how much better are this new covenant is than what we had before. It's a culmination and a continuation of it, but it is related. So, so on into verse 14, he says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast our confession. So this let us hold fast our confession continues that same thought. Hang in there. Hold fast to what you know. Uh, put your you know, just to such an encouraging word there. And this, let us hold fast, this is uh, an exhortation. You know, y'all, you can, you, can, you can bank on this. You know, just, just pleading with these people, let us hold fast. There's going to be another exhortation in verse 16. Let us have confidence to approach God. So we'll get to that in a, in a moment. Those, so those two exhortations to us. But, but then we have... Uh, this explanation of woven in there. So it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now remember, most of this was a Jewish audience who had been used to the Jewish kind of way of doing things. Um, and it involved the, a, whole, a whole hierarchy of the priesthood, including the high priest, right? Um, You, they probably had to wonder, okay, how does how does this all work? We don't we're, we're not we don't have all these priests anymore. Uh, now, how does this work now? And of course, they were Christians, so they kind of knew. But you could understand that maybe these Jews that weren't yet Christians, uh, it it was in transition for sure. So he's saying Jesus is now our high priest. So it's worth pausing there, audience participation. What was the whole reason that 
they had all this priestly hierarchy. Why did they need the priests? Okay. Needed someone to intercede for them. And all the sacrifices also. The sacrifices? Well, they needed someone to remind them of all those laws. Remind them of all the laws? All of that is true. There was a big problem, though, that required the priests. What was that problem? We were separated from God. We've got a big sin problem. It started in the garden. That, that day that sin entered the world, we were now estranged from our Creator, the God who loved us, who made us in his image, who had great plans for us, who literally put the world at our feet, who gave us the entire creation to be in charge of and to enjoy, this fellowship where we could walk and talk and commune with our, you know, God. Sin broke all that down, separated us from all that was meaningful, right? That day, everything started to break down. The world started to go crazy. Our DNA started to mutate. You know, everything bad that happened, I, I'm pretty sure, had its roots in that day. That's why Leviticus. That's why Deuteronomy. That's why all of God's redemptive plan was because we have a sin problem. And so, as Pat said, we needed someone to intercede for us. We need someone to, to help reconnect us, and God laid out that plan, Leviticus and, and then again in Deuteronomy, um, God laid it out. Okay, here's... And, of course, there were a lot of reasons for the laws. There were... Uh, part of the laws there were, were there to decide everything from who gets what property to, you know, how do you um, organize your household? How did you organize these millions of people? And uh, so there are very practical laws like you would need anytime you have, you know, any two sinners in the same room, they're going to need some sort of rule. Uh, um, you know, um, yeah, I mean, all of that. Um, <clears throat> but ultimately, everything was designed to, to deal with our sin problem. A lot of the rules also had to do with this extreme focus on um, protocol and um, precision in how you obeyed the laws and then separation of what was clean and unclean, you know, to, 
to just give us a glimpse of of the distance between God's holiness and our sinfulness, right? It was all in the priesthood to kind of reconnect all that together. So when when the writer of Hebrews says, since then we have a great high priest, that was incredibly good news. Incredibly good news. And it gets even better. Since then we have a great high priest, Jesus... Let's hold fast to our confession. We can, we can hang on to this. We are on solid ground here because we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but yet without sin. So one of the huge things that happened when Jesus came down to this fallen world as a man he got to experience what it was like. So, you know, are there ways that we are tempted that he wasn't? Of course, you know. Uh, Jesus could not cheat on his income taxes, right? Jesus couldn't get hooked on internet porn. But was greed around? Was lust around? Was covetousness around? Was idolatry around? Was drunkenness around? I mean, the core sins have always been there, right? You know, they've always been there. So we may have figured out different ways to, to sin, but those core temptations haven't changed. So he was tempted, yet without sin. Um, one commentator put an interesting spin on this, and I, I don't even think it was original with them, but they're saying... Only someone who has been able to resist the full temptation of sin knows its strength. Those of us, which is all of us, who have given in at some point in time, it's like we crumbled before we felt the full weight. I thought that was an interesting spin on it. Um, Yet, Jesus was tempted. So he knows. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. So then here's the second exhortation, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Um, Apparently this in time of need phrase um, kind of has this idea of getting the help right when you need it. And I think that's really good. Now, um, I must admit sometimes it would be nice to have that sort of grace a little ahead of time. Uh, sometimes we wonder. Um, but God comes through, of course. Um, I guess that's maybe my own faith thing. Maybe that doesn't happen to anybody else. Um, but let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Um, one of the um, one of the um, features of my world and it's not something I like but I'm not sure I know how to fix it there are barriers to people who want to connect with me in my professional life right if you just call up and say hey Tell Art I need to talk to him. 
you're not going to get very far if you just call up there. But if you happen to know Gwinnett, <laughs> who is our uh, air traffic control back where I'm actually in the process of working and seeing people, if you know her, she can get me. She knows where I am. She has my cell phone. She can get me if nobody else can. You can have much more confidence getting to me through her than you can just on your own. Infinitesimally greater, our confidence at connecting with God through Jesus is so, so amazing. Let us draw near to the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and find grace and to help in time of need. This is just the preamble. Chapter 5. Organizationally, and I don't think I've ever talked about this, although the commentators appear to love this notion. Apparently, a lot of New Testament writers and even Old Testament writers use this rhetorical and teaching tool, you might say, a mnemonic. Everybody know what a mnemonic is? A memory aid called a chiasm, um, which probably is a play on the Greek letter for X. And if you just think in terms of outline form, where you have a statement and then there's an indention, and then a statement and another indention, you've done outlining. They teach outlining still? It's probably gone the way of diagramming sentences. Uh, anyway, this whole section, verses 1 through 10, is a chiasm. And I'll have it in the notes, but the concepts are, he's going to talk about the old office of the high priest. That connects with verse 10, where he talks about the new office of the high priest. One indention, there's, he's going to talk about the sacrifice of the old high priest. Down in verse 9, he's going to talk about the sacrifice of our new high priest. Verses 2 and 3, he's going to talk about the weaknesses of the old high priest. And in verses 7 and 8, he's going to talk about the sufferings of the new high priest. And then he's going to talk about the appointment of the old high priest and the new high priest. So let's walk through this. And it, there's been a lot of times when they've talked about this technique where I just really didn't get it, even though they were showing it to me. But this one, I kind of got it. So I'm going to mention it. Verse 1, every high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So there is this office of the high priest chosen to act on behalf of men in relation to God. That was the function, that was the office of the high priest, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So he could identify with us. Verse 3, 
Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. You can read more about this um, in Leviticus 16. We've talked about this a number of occasions, but uh, just to review, um, on the Day of Atonement, this one special day, the high priest went through a lot of ceremonial cleansing, got up in ceremonial garb, wore ceremonial breastplates with ceremonial insets, with ceremonial set of dice. True. And went in with um, a bull and a couple of goats and a ram. The first thing the priest does is to slaughter the bull as a sacrifice for his own sin just so that he could do the rest of the ceremony. Just to, just to acknowledge and deal with his own sin. Then he would set about dealing with the sins of the people. There was a sacrifice of the one goat. There was the laying on his hands and praying the sins of the people onto the second goat. You know the scapegoat that was led into the wilderness. You guys know this story. But the point is he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins first. Verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So this is something that was appointed by God. So Walking in through the outline, high priest, we know what his job was, we know he had weaknesses, we know that he had to offer sacrifices, and we know that he was appointed by God. Verse 5, we're going to work our way out of this. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This reference from Psalm refers to, uh, not to the day he was born in Bethlehem, but the day that he was raised gloriously at the resurrection. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now we're going to, Melchizedek is going to get a mention again in verse 10, but this concept of the priestly authority is really going to be developed even more so in the latter part of chapter 6 and the first of chapter 7. So we'll deal with Melchizedek then. But the point being that there are two kind of fo um, uh, sources of authority here. One is that it was appointed by God because... He was begotten, raised, and then also connected with this priestly order of Melchizedek, which was far superior to any other priesthood. Verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reference. In other words, he was exposed to times when he had weaknesses. He had, he had fears. He had um, uh, 
times when he he wanted to escape from the the role that was ahead of him um, thinking about this with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death what picture does that make you think of this is a garden of Gethsemane right that's right yeah um, this is this is him praying um, can can I get out of this Lord is you know if this is what it takes your will be done but if there's another way if there's another way and so this kind of connects with this steadfastness theme this being faithful theme this persevering to the end this finishing what God has for you theme this not really entering into your rest until you have completed the task what has been put before you that so all this you can see reflections of that verse 8 although he was a son he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him and so forth so it says he learned obedience through what it was suffered and being made perfect so does that mean he wasn't obedient to begin with no does that mean he wasn't perfect to begin with no but it's different when you've experienced it right it's different when you've experienced it um, he was going to have this authority he was going to finish the course in perfection but he experienced these things which makes it so much better for him and for us he's this seems kind of baffles my mind I, I, but I think this is accurate that you know he was changed by his experience and if it's possible to be a better God for having done that that's what happened now again that sounds so strange I never really thought about that but I think that's what the Bible is trying to say that things are better because of what he experienced down here part of his supreme qualification is that he was able to do that these uh, these royal sons was it William and Harry they're always in the news I'm not uh, you know I'm not sure what their main roles are but but I, I don't know if it's a requirement but I think it might be you know before they you know get to where they're going they spend some time in the military uh, they you know I think they like learn how to fly helicopters and all these sorts of things so at least they have some exposure to um, the world um, it I, I kind of wonder what what's it like to be their sergeant or the equivalent in boot camp um, when you know they're, they're like the prince <laughs> uh, but yet they go through that they endure that and they know how it's going to turn out right they know i'm going to make it they know i'm not going to get kicked out but but they probably are better for having gone through the experience and i think that's kind of what this is saying and again the analogy breaks down really quickly but you get the idea although he was a son he learned obedience through what he suffered in being made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him 
that's the sacrifice part. That's the corollary to the sacrifice part. And then verse 10, we have being designated by God a high priest after the order of the Melchizedek. So that brings us back to the outside of the outline. So um, a per, uh, this was a lot in just 10 verses. We learn about Jesus more than we have before. We learn about this priestly role more than we've heard before. We heard about the qualifications and the essence of what it takes to be a priest. And again, the admonition is this is going to be someone that we can approach, that we can, we can pray to, that we can have expectation that, that he's going to be there for us with all the many ways. All right. Time's gone. Uh, this whole section is going to go all the way through 6 and 7. Uh, this concept of, of God and Christ specifically as our priest. So we'll, we'll do more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you have provided for us and so much through Jesus, through whom we can connect to your family, through whom we can be in that vine of support and that vine of, of life, through whom we can be connected with this new Israel that's part of the new covenant, through whom we can even partake of that new covenant wine, through whom we can approach you and ask for intercession and ask for mercy and grace. We thank you for Jesus and pray that you'd continue to help us to be more and more like him and to be his hands and feet to those who need us. In his name I pray, amen. Thanks, everybody.